is Happiness Solved with America's Happiness Coach, Sandy Scarlatta. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I am so happy you're here. So I recently had an amazing opportunity to talk about this topic on live TV, and I think that it's just, it's a timely thing to start my podcast with, and it's basically reset and de-stress. So, you know, stress is still a huge factor in today's world, and it is such a major problem that is affecting people both mentally and physically. According to the American Psychological Association, stress affects all systems of the body. That's right. Every major system of our body it can be affected by stress. Now, WebMD reported that 43% of all adults suffer adverse health effects from stress, like high blood pressure, skin conditions, depression, and anxiety. And 75 to 90% of all doctor's office visits are for stress-related ailments and complaints. That number is staggering. So I always like to say, at any time during the day, you can press the reset button, right? And reset your day, just like you reboot your computer when it's not functioning properly. So here are my five tips to reset your day and help you reduce stress. Step one is exercise, right? Exercise is going to raise your endorphins. It's going to get your heart rate up, and that is going to help you reduce your stress. So take a walk in nature, dance to your favorite music, ride a bike, anything that you enjoy doing is going to help reduce your stress. Step two, gratitude. Every day when you wake up, make a list of everything you have to be grateful for. And at any time during the day when you need to reset your day, focus on your blessings and feel its loving embrace. You will be amazed at how quickly you will feel better. Tip three, deep breathing. All you need to do is take 10 slow, deep breaths in through your nose and out through your mouth, okay? This is also an amazing way to reduce your anxiety. Tip number four, grounding or earthing. So this just simply means taking off your shoes outside and feeling the grass or the earth beneath your feet right? This is energizing and balancing for your emotions. So imagine yourself walking on the beach if you've ever experienced that, right? The sun's shining, you've got a breeze blowing, you hear the sound of the ocean, but what's really happening is that your your feet are touching the earth. That's why it feels so great. So just take off your shoes and walk on the grass. You don't have to go to the beach. And the last step, number five, is trust. Learn to trust that everything is going to work out exactly as it's supposed to, right? It always does. And I always like to add to that, if you can control a situation, then there's nothing to worry about because you have control over it. If you can't control a situation, then there's no need to worry about it because it's something that is completely out of your control. So I hope you enjoyed these tips and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. So my interview today is with Max Reef. Max has such a wealth of information and he shares this incredible journey that he has been on for decades now. And I certainly learned a lot and I hope you do as well. Hey, Max, how are you today? Thank you so much for joining me. 
Yeah, great to be here, Sandy. Yeah, so you're on the West Coast. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds like a beautiful area. You're outside of San Francisco, you said? Yeah, it's nice. I'm across the bay uh, from San Francisco and then about uh, 10 miles inland from Oakland and Berkeley. Gets a little hot here, but um, in the summer sometimes, but it's very nice much of the year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the weather's incredible. So as I told you, I'm outside of Washington, D.C., and Mm -hmm. we go from beautiful no humid days for about a week or two, and mm-hmm. then it's just hot and humid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, I've been there. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's kind of, it gets kind of mm-hmm. nasty here. So have you been out there your whole life? No, I, I was born in New York City in, well, 1948. That sort of age, puts my age out there for people who can do arithmetic. And uh, I, my family moved to St. Louis, Missouri when I was about three, and I grew up there in a suburb of St. Louis and have been... Uh, kind of all over the place since then, although I have been in in uh, 1998 or 99, it was actually, I was drawn back out here where I had lived before by a uh, female friend whom I had connected with on a, a spiritual, what do you call it, listserv in, on the internet, and who's now my wife and just went to bed having had a late night doing reading and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. So tell me about yourself. What what brought you to where you are today? It's a very complicated story. When I was in my early 20s, I was feeling, uh, oh yeah, I was kind of a, a parent's kid. They, I was like the racehorse in our family that they had all their money on. And they really kind of doted on me. And then when I went away to college and didn't have that support, I, I started really I'm slowly falling apart. And uh, two or three years into that, I had read books by uh, Alan Watts and uh, Aldous Huxley about psychedelics. I was realizing that I was, uh, I seemed to have some problems inside. And I, I made, I was in Sarasota, Florida at an experimental college called New College that I had just transferred to that year. And I decided I would either uh, go to a therapist or take LSD, whichever I could access first and the very next day i was in a park <laughs> and i passed this hippie saying sunshine after just back from the west coast five dollars a hit oh my gosh and i so i bought some and i put it in my wallet wondering if i would ever take it and then the next week a, a guy i knew at, at college said hey want to hey want a trip so so i put this little pill in my mouth and washed it down and uh well, my life began unraveling, although it over the years, it became evident that I had had some traumas early on that I not that I wasn't aware of them on some level, but that I had just I was so fortified against facing that I wouldn't look at them. And over the years, well, I later became a couple, couple years through this, I had a, a well, I'll say mystical experience. It was it was rather sudden, and there's a much longer story to it. But I, I experienced uh, visiting a friend in his office. He'd been a campus radical who'd become an advertising man within two years, and I had been I'd been visiting Chicago where I'd first gone to school at Northwestern, and uh, I had been avoiding him because he had changed so much in the past couple of years. But he had called me. Just before I was about to leave town, and I and asked me if I'd stop by to say hi to him. So I went up to his office in the Prudential Building in downtown Chicago, 
And uh, he came out into the reception area in, on the 26th floor. I think it was the Leo Burnett Agency, a big agency in Chicago. It may still be there. And he took me back to the tiniest personal office I'd ever seen uh, and uh, gave me a hug and motioned for me the, the, the only other chair besides his chair behind the desk in this tiny office. And I sat down facing him. And behind him, there was a big poster of this young long-haired, bearded, and mustached man, and the poster said, I am the Ancient One. And under that, it said, I was Rama, I was Krishna, I was this one, I was that one, and now I am Meher Baba. And Meher Baba was an Eastern mystic that I had heard of because a year or two before, I'd been walking to breakfast at, at New College one day, during the period when I was doing the acid, before I really broke down. And a friend of mine joined me to walk to the cafeteria, and he was, he was like walking while he was carrying a, a, a New York Times that he was reading as he walked. You know, he had the whole thing, one, one side in one hand and the other hand, and I don't see how he could see, but he was walking. And he said as we walked, he said, oh, here's an interesting article. There was this man who lived in India and didn't speak and said he was God, and he was silent most of his life. And he said he would speak before he died, and he just died, and his name was Meher Baba. So I had heard that name, and then I had not known really very much about Meher Baba. I had, I had had occasion to a uh, friend who had been traveling and stopped at my parents' house where, when I was living there in St. Louis, when I was back home, had one of a book of Meher Baba's discourses in his backpack, and I asked to look at it. And I just, you know, I, I turned to the discourse on love, because I knew that love was what I sorely needed. And I tried to read it, and it was just like, uh, almost like veiled, I guess. I was going to say like Greek, but I could understand the words. I just couldn't really, you know, it didn't compute. So I found myself in this office in Chicago with this old friend from, we had been sort of radicals, campus, he was a campus radical leader, and I was uh, sort of in the group at Northwestern. And uh, he had left town for a while. Well, he'd won the, the <laughs> this is so many details. Am I going into too much no, detail? No, it's perfect. Okay. Oh, I great. love it. Okay. No, it's great. Okay. He, this fellow had run for uh, student president at Northwestern on a radical ticket. It was a very, uh, if you know anything about Northwestern, it was a very conservative uh, university. And this fellow was having, um, bit, he called them bitchins, demonstrations at this big campus landmark called The Rock every day as part of his campaign. And uh, he would climb to the top of this rock with a bullhorn and start to air grievances uh, about against the university, invite anybody else who had grievances to come up there. And uh, every day he would lead a march through the city of Evanston uh, with people carrying signs for open housing. There was a lot of redlining going on, and they were protesting that. And um, he and I, I actually, uh, there's a, it leads into another story I won't tell here. I, well, I, I got beat up by a campus uh, security guard, not really beaten up, but roughed up. And my ego was severely bruised. And so I went up to the top, to the rock and told my story and everybody cheered. That was how I first got to know this fellow. And he won the election for student president back in 1960, um, I think 68. And then during the summer, the, during the summer break, the university sneakily sent him a letter when most people were off campus saying, you won the election, but you're disqualified from taking office because you didn't finish a summer school course once. Oh, goodness. And he was just <laughs> too disgusted at that point, too disillusioned. And he just, he left town and he had stayed with uh, 
my roommate and I for uh, a few weeks before he left town. And about six weeks after he left, we had received uh, a postcard from him written on a beach in Mexico. And it said only one, it said, beautiful picture of this beach, but on the other side it said, truth is metaphysical, not political. And that was all we heard from him. Then I began hearing rumors. I can't even remember how I heard him. I heard that he had, he had ended up in Berkeley, California, and he'd gotten married to this lady who supposedly was a witch in her past in a past life. I don't know how anybody ever sent that rumor. I don't know who said that, but somebody said it. And he had become a devotee of this man, Meher Baba, whom I'd heard of and whose book I'd tried to read. So now when I, when I was back visiting Chicago in uh, 19, um, it was like early 71. And I had, in the meantime, had a nervous breakdown and been thought my life was over because the, the LSD combined with my things coming up from the inside of me that I wasn't able to face. I just broke down. It was too much for me. And I'd been, I think, you know, I'd been holding on to it so tightly so I didn't have to face it. And, uh, and my, I was, I was asked by my parents to go to a psychiatrist and he started giving me antidepressant pills, which I had, people had not heard of those at that time in life. At least I hadn't in the world. And finally, after he, he was very meticulous and scientific after trying a number of them, he got, gave me stronger and stronger pills. And this one finally just gave me all the energy that I hadn't had for a year during my breakdown. And, and he, he, he gave me the science of it. What he, I don't know how to say it. What he believed was the science that it was very complicated. You, you have had a chemical depression because your body was inhibiting the, the chemical, which inhibits something or other. And this pill was supposed to inhibit the inhibitor, and that's why it gave me back my energy. I, and I believed that. I didn't have anything else to believe at the time. I mean, I sort of, it was a bit suspect because it was so, seemed so unlikely, his explanation. And the, the implication that, he, they, that humankind knew so much about the brain and, and uh, consciousness. But the pill gave me energy, and on the basis, and I just said, okay, I'm better now. And I went, I went on the basis of all the energy I had, it was too much to be contained in the one city, my hometown where I was living, St. Louis. And I drove up to Chicago to visit old friends. And everywhere I would go to visit my old friends, I spent a couple of weeks just having dinner with people and playing music and stuff. I played some guitar and banjo. All the families I would visit, they would take me through their, uh, their, their book room or their office or study. And there would always be a book in the, on a shelf about Meher Baba that they would point out to me and they'd say, this fellow, his name was Ellis. Ellis uh, dropped this by. And uh, then we would, instead of ever talking about what the book said or anything, I don't know if anybody even read the books, we would all talk about how, how um, eccentric Ellis was, how he'd been a radical two years before. Now he was an advertising man. One girl said, I saw him on TV selling laundry detergent. You don't want to have anything to do with him. So visiting all my friends, I avoided Ellis I had succeeded in avoiding him for the whole two weeks I was staying in Chicago. And I was just about, I was going to leave in a day or so when, well, first of all, when I had this, this dream that was much more real than my waking life, I won't go into it because it would take too long, but I didn't even know there could be such things. And then I fell back asleep, I think. And then the next I knew one of the girls I was staying with said, there's a phone call for you. And I gave me the receiver and I said, hello. And this voice said, hi, this is Ellis. And it was this guy I'd been avoiding. <laughs> <laughs> and he had, he had caught up with me. And I, I, I realized in, as the years went by, it probably took a bit of uh, courage for him to call me because 
you know, he probably got wind of the idea that I was avoiding him because I hadn't called him. And so he said, uh, you know, I heard I heard you're in town. I heard you're doing very well, and I'm really so happy to hear it. And I'd love it if you just come down to my office just to say hi before you leave town. And And his voice was so natural. There was nothing eccentric about it. I just felt very comfortable talking with him. And I said, sure, I'll come by tomorrow morning. So I got on the L train, the, um, you know, the rapid, well, I don't know how rapid, it's fairly rapid transit, I guess. And went downtown and I went, uh, got on the elevator Prudential building and um, the lobby of his, oh, we were I already told this part. He took me into his office and I was sitting in the chair. Okay. So I made <laughs> up the ground of what I wasn't going to say. And now you have the whole picture of how I got there. So, um, so I'm just sitting there facing him. And I see this picture behind him, this big poster, I Am the Ancient One. It was on yellow newsprint paper. It was put out by a guy in Berkeley that I, I know now. And a beautiful doe-eyed picture of Mayor Baba when he was in his, probably in his 20s still, in long hair, beautiful, luxurious long hair, and sort of a, a wispy beard and a big mustache. And I realized for the first time now, I, I said to myself, I guess, I'm facing somebody who, if I ask him questions about Mayor Baba, I, I can actually get answers. So I, so these, these questions started coming out of my mouth that I, I hadn't prepared for. And, uh, it, but it was like, I don't know, they were so spontaneous. And I said, does this man really say he was God? And Ellis said, well, Mayor Baba says everybody and everything is God. But there are only a very few people who are conscious of their divinity. And those are the ones who can really help uh, others. And then I asked, I mean, I didn't even have to think without missing a beat. I asked, well, there may have been a couple other questions, but then I asked at soon, soon after the important question to me, why shouldn't I follow uh, Christ or Ramakrishna? Now, Ramakrishna was a great mystic who lived in the uh, late 1800s near Calcutta. There's a wonderful book called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. One of his disciples had a photographic memory and wrote down like 1600 pages of the masters. It's like a play. It reads like a play. His, his dealings with other people who came to visit. It's a phenomenal book. I didn't read it for till several years later, but, but I had read a little, a little uh, a part of a book about Ramakrishna. And I said, why shouldn't I follow Ramakrishna or Christ? And I had been reading Thomas Merton because when you, when you have a breakdown, you know, you, I, I think it's sort of second nature to start searching however, however you're able to. And so exactly. I've been reading, yeah, reading a little bit of mysticism. So, so I, so the question that popped out of my mouth was why shouldn't I follow Christ or Ramakrishna? I'd been raised Jewish, but I like Thomas Merton. So my friend said that that's when he said, now Mayor Baba says that there's a being called the avatar, which is like the world messenger. And and there are various names, the word, the name Christ or Buddha, or in Islam, they use the word Razul sometimes. And he comes to earth and this isn't that this is not the teaching of Orthodox Christianity or Islam, but this is what Mayor Baba said. He comes to earth approximately every 700 to 1400 years when people start to forget what we're really doing here in recorded history. He's come millions of times. Apparently they say that the masters of wisdom say there've been millions of cycles, millions of earths. I mean, I, I don't even know the numbers in, in Hindu, uh, time reckoning they have the the concept of a kalpa which is i think 4.3 billion years or something like that they they see things in these vast epical terms but anyway 
Ellis, my friend, said, in recorded history, the avatar has come, Aunt Baba said, as Zoroaster, Rama, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, and Muhammad, and that Meher Baba said he is that same ancient one who comes again and again. And I thought, and, and, and at a certain point, I may have asked a couple other questions, but at a certain point, he had answered all my questions with simple factual answers according to what Mayor Baba had said. Uh, the, they weren't his answers. They were actually Mayor Baba's answers that he was relaying. And my mind just rested for a little. I didn't have any more questions. And I just sat there one, I feeling like something was going to happen, but I had no idea what. And then out of my mouth popped this other question that I didn't even know I was going to verbalize. I said, where is he now? Because Mayor Baba, the first thing I had learned about Mayor Baba was that he had died. That would that had been on uh, January thirty first, nineteen sixty nine, and I was walking to breakfast on February first, I think, when my friend read me the newspaper article. So I said, "Where is he now?" Because you know, he, the the thought I had was he may so it sounded like he was a really great man, but if he's dead, what's the difference? So that was why I asked the question, and I waited for my friend to answer that question as adroitly and uh, articulately as he'd answered all the others. But as I looked across at him, he was just smiling. And I kept waiting, and he just kept smiling. <laughs> and, I, you know, he never said a word, and I just wondered what was going on. And then I started feeling something that I rapidly lost the capacity to ever be able to describe in words. But it was an experience, in some respects, of the oneness that Meher Baba and all the other mystics, for that matter, describe. This oneness that there is only one being in the universe. And this atmosphere, which seemed to fill the room and perhaps everything else, too, it had a sort of a pinkish ambiance. I, I don't think I saw anything visually that was pink, but it had that kind of ambiance. And later I learned that Mayor Baba often wore pink Indian sadra, and the pink, color pink is kind of associated with what we call Baba's love. And and it was so it was as though he was actually in the room, whatever he is, he's he's beyond anything we can conceive from, if you imagine what God is, was in the room with me and saying, this is my, our introduction. This is who I am. I am this love that you're feeling now. And, and as I began learning about Baba later, I, I would read time and again how in different ways he would tell different people, I'm not this body that you see. It's only a coat that I put on. And when I die, so to speak, I've just taken off my coat, but I'm still everywhere and in everything. And he also said he would be especially accessible for the next, um, I believe it's the next hundred years, possibly a little more than that. So that's, so that's been my um, guiding star for, it's been, you know, incredibly, it's been 50 years now. Wow. I've been focusing on this man or whatever, looking through his eyes to whatever, as in his pictures, to whatever you know, he really is beyond those eyes to whatever depth there really is and praying to that depth, which other people call by other names, you know, and some people don't call it by any name. In Buddhism, there's no recognition. You know, it's a non-theistic spiritual system that doesn't use the word God, but they have the same concepts of ultimate reality that they, I guess they call it nirvana. Yeah, so 50 years focusing on Mayor Baba. I've been to his... Uh, they call it his samadhi, where he's buried in India six times over all those years. And he has a center in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, a beautiful 500-acre um, wildlife center and retreat right on the ocean. It's in actually in Myrtle Beach in the area. It's North Myrtle Beach. 
uh, with virgin forest. It's just a wonderful place. And I, I, I lived there for a number of years. Not on the, You don't live on the center, but I lived in the community there for several years. And so that's been kind of my, I think you, whatever question you asked, that was the answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to hear your story. Yeah. I wanted to so hear that, your story. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest story, I guess, in my life. I have other big stories. That wasn't the one I was planning to tell today when, when the people at the Mindful Word asked me if, if there was something I would, you know, might want to be interviewed about, but that's the one that came out and that's fine too. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it because yeah. I'm not familiar with any of that. And, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I love learning, learning new things. So, so yeah. what do you do today? You, you mean in, I suppose you mean in general, not in, just in general. Saturday. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you uh, got yeah. on this journey. So what, yeah. what has that led you to? Well, lots and lots of things, but I'm, I, I always was kind of challenged professionally because the skills that I, that I had or thought I had didn't fit into any real niche unless you, you know, I'm, I, I, so I would do, I, I liked writing and I would do, I would write. I was shortly after this Baba experience, I had, I began experiencing a lot of inspiration. And a few years later in my life, some of the stuff from my childhood came up even more powerfully. And I had another breakdown and I worked in Ram Dass. I wrote this letter to Ram Dass, who I didn't know from Adam. And he wrote me this beautiful letter back. That's a whole other story. It could be a whole other interview. And he took away a lot of the shame that was left over from my childhood. And I feel like you could say Bob was working through him, that he was a helper. And uh, so since then, I've, there's been a lot more inspiration. And I've done a lot in the arts, a lot of poetry and writing uh, prose stories, as well as poetry and essays for the mindful word and um, became a painter at a certain point and began writing songs or, you know, which I, another thing I, I knew a little bit about musical scales since I'd been forced to take piano lessons as a child, but I never dreamed that I could write songs. But after these experiences, they just started popping out. And I, I have a, put out a couple CDs. Um, that inspiration or whatever it is hasn't been as, as accessible the last few years. But, but there's some beautiful. I recently actually recorded an album in Myrtle Beach with a friend named Cliff Hackford, who's like a master producer. And it's a great, I wonder, I'm so happy with the album. I feel like it, it's what Baba wanted from me. And it, it's, I'm just overjoyed that. I connected with this great man to put my songs in the settings they deserved. So anyway, finally, um, after knocking around various jobs, uh, delivery courier and supermarket checker and what else, I don't know. I, I was once a uh, literary assistant for uh, a writer that was, who, who had been a painter who had gone blind. That's a whole other story, too. But I work at a preschool now. Um, there's a school called the Mayher School in Walnut, in Lafayette, which is the next suburb over from where I live. It's been around for about 45 years now. And it was chart. It was opened by a group named Sufism Reoriented, which is a group that's dedicated to Mayher Baba. And somehow when I moved out back out here 20 some years ago, I was a delivery courier. And then in the uh, one of the uh, recessions that went on, somehow like the internet bubble burst or something, and there wasn't as much delivery business. And I asked the uh, teacher, the head of the Sufis, which I, I was part of that organization for a while, if he had any ideas for a job I could, I could do. And he asked me to come to the school and it seemed to be a good fit. And I, I enjoy working with children and, and it's nice to have something I can do that ha that's useful and get paid for and to be able to hold the same job for 20 years. So, and it's, and I, I do my music there. I play, I've written, I have a CD of children's songs too, and um, read stories and just work with the children in various ways. 
So that's what I do for, for my uh, livelihood now. I'm down, down to four hours a day now. The school was, uh, you know, we cut back. We couldn't have as many people during the pandemic and many students. So we had smaller classes and I wasn't needed. I had been working six hours the last few years. I'm happy at my age working four hours a day and we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, exactly. I'm on vacation now, which is nice. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. So your CD that you put out, what mm-hmm. kind of music is it? Would you, how would you describe that? Well, it's, uh, <laughs> I'm a baby boomer and I'm, my influence are, are Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, people like that. I guess whatever I imbibed from my musical influences, you know, started coming out of me. And then there were also, there were some very inspired singers devoted to Mayor Baba who began using the rock idiom and writing spirit songs for Baba that really good rock and roll songs are just, they're just spiritual uh, songs of devotion or joy. And so uh, it's sort of a folk rock style. Let's see, there's a song, the first song on the album that Cliff got these wonderful uh, musicians who do solos in between the verses and stuff. And I'm just so thrilled with what one guy named John Ware. I just love the way he plays uh, guitar improvisations. The first song goes, it's called Sweet Intoxication. And it's based on an experience I had. I don't remember the circumstances, except that I was waiting for a bus outside of the San Francisco library in back in the eighties when I had lived in the Bay area. I lived in San Francisco for a while. And just, it, it was just a feeling of joy of inspiration that came from what a beautiful day it was, I guess. And a feeling of intoxication. The song's called Sweet Intoxication. And it starts, I'll just sing a few lines. Sweet intoxication. I can't wait. Can't get Sweet intoxication fills my little heart. I knew that it would be this way. I knew it from the start. When I walk beside you, everything is new. Sweet intoxication from walking next to you. And then it goes on. And there were all nice. kinds of things. Yeah, they were all different. And some of the songs were just surprises. I didn't know I could write a song. And I, after I worked with Ram Das, and he, he pretty much just removed a lot of the shame that, that had been consciously or half-consciously inside me since certain things that happened in my childhood and that had severely inhibited me. And, and it, it, led, it led to my... Just telling him, he would sometimes, I had read it before I, I connected with him, and this was in 1976 when I worked with him. He would say to people, whatever it is that you can't tell me, go ahead and tell me. And I had reached a point where I felt I had to talk about this stuff that I had never been able to talk about. And I had written to him not knowing anything from him. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little more into this because it was so inspiring what he sent back to me. I think I wrote him... And this was five years after I had this Mayor Bob experience, but there was just a lot of stuff that still needed to be stirred up and burned. And it got a lot of it got burned, but with Ram Dass's help. But when I, I wrote to him, I was looking, let's see, I just wrote him a note that said something like, Dear Ram Dass, is there such thing as eternal damnation because I feel my soul is ruined? And it was that bad during this period. It was so intense, all the stuff that came up and all the shame and all the things I, was, I couldn't talk about and all the, a lot of sexual stuff, too, that I'm, I, don't, I don't like to talk about in public explicitly because it freaks other people out. But I've, had, I've dealt with a lot of it inside myself by God's grace and with help of people like Ram Dass. And he wrote back a few weeks later, I got a, a message, a letter from him written 
in ink on a little piece of note paper. It said, Dear Max, your soul is not ruined and there is no damage to your thought or feeling whatever. Psychologically, you may be a mess, but spiritually, you are going to God. In order to go to God, you have to get all the shit inside you opened up. Why not come visit with me in New York City? It shouldn't take more than a couple of hours for starters. If you can't come to New York, just write me in more detail about your scene and we'll work by letter. Just be totally honest, open, and uh, I forget the other word, true or something. Then he said, hmm, God loves you and will show you as soon as you begin to love yourself. Blessings surround you, except your own beauty, Ramdas. Wow. Yeah, so I ended up, it turned out he was coming to Oklahoma City on a lecture tour in a few weeks, which is much closer to St. Louis, and I felt a lot safer going just 300 miles to Oklahoma City, and I took a plane down there and went to his talk, and then the next morning I had an appointment and went to his motel room, and we, he just said, Max, what are you thinking about? And I just started pouring out all of the stuff that I was ashamed of and had never been able to talk about, and then he, he said, ah, what else? And I poured out some more stuff, I guess. And then he said, ah, he'd say, ah, this big voice straight from his heart. And finally, then he began saying, I love you when he began seeing me more, I guess. And I was, he was rewarding me, in in other words, for my honesty, instead of not just for saying what was expected or was safe for other, other people to hear, and he could handle it all. And finally, in about 10 minutes of this, I just looked, I, I, I was so lost in, in the process of being with him. And I finally looked at myself and I realized it's all gone. All the shit that I had been drowning in for the last six months was just gone without a trace. And we were, we were sitting there like just two rays of the sun. And then for the next six months, he was, months, he was, he, he, he acted, became, became kind of like a second father for me. He, I would phone him every week or so and write to him, and I got to visit him twice in various places and went to a retreat that he he uh, was sponsoring. And um, this was I've been very fortunate in this. And then I also later learned I had heard I had heard for years that Mayor Baba had said once Ramdas is mine. Richard at Richard Alpert. Richard is mine. Richard Alpert was his his given name, of course. And I could never substantiate it until finally I did. I met somebody who, who was told by, some, by one of Mayor Bob's close disciples that th- this fellow had been a friend of Ram Dass. Maybe that's why he was told that. This disciple told him, Mayor, I, Baba wants you to know. Baba wasn't spiritually, wasn't in the body anymore, but I guess he felt Baba wanted this fellow to know. Mayor Baba had said one time, Richard is mine. And I, so I felt, you know, I already had felt Baba was working through Richard at, throughout Ram Dass. Of course, there's no... I have another friend who, who was fortunate enough to meet Mayor Baba several times when he was a child. And he told the story about the first time he was waiting to go into the room to meet Mayor Baba, this man whom his mother and his aunt, who were also who were devotees of Baba's, had become devotees. This man was told him what they had told him was God, and he didn't know what to expect, so he went in the room and Baba was just sitting there alone. Very few people ever encountered Baba alone, but and Charles, my friend, uh, stood there and he just took in who this person in the chair was across the room. And he said, yes, he was God. Yes, this was Mayor Baba. But this Mayor Baba is not really his name. This, this presence I am with now is, he said, the nameless one, the one for whom there is no name, because it's beyond any, any name you can give. Hmm. But for his life on earth, you know, he, he took this name name was actually Mer- Merwan Sheriar Irani, but one of his early disciples 
began using the name Meher Baba, which means compassionate father. And that stuck. So, and we, you know, we need a name to function on earth. So. Right. But my friend had a dramatic experience. So, so really, the one working through Ramdas to say he was Mayor Baba's helper, or I just felt that I, many times when I was work with Ramdas, I felt there's only a thin veil uh, between him and God. He he worked so purely. That was my experience, at least. Wow. Well, and just the fact that you're sharing with the audience mm-hmm. that experience, because mm-hmm. when you're keeping all of that inside and that shame, it's yeah. just going to eat you up alive. Yeah, so. that's right. And everybody knows that. Yeah. 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 People know it, but they don't deal with it. No. Well, it's I know. I know. And I and I couldn't. I mean, I feel in retrospect that God brought me through things that had been utterly impossible for me to even conceive of ever dealing with consciously. And I was led on this with God. I, you could only say, I mean, I don't know if God holding my hand, the impersonal God maybe doesn't have a hand, but I was just being led through things that were utterly, it, Baba said, I have actually have a uh, sign right here on my, to my desk, through love, the impossible becomes possible. Yes. And that happened for me, not once, but many times. Yes. And that's why I like to tell these stories when possible. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. So where can people find your music and any of your writings? Um, let's see, that's, uh, maybe if you Google my name, Max Reef, M-A-X-R-E-I-F, the mindful word has a lot of my writings. I haven't, I haven't, for some reason, I haven't been writing lately things to send to them, but they have many, many, many writings from six or seven or eight years. The, the, uh, online journal that I know another, uh, writer from there, Forrest Rivers was also on here. Yes. And my music, I have a YouTube channel that has some of my songs on it. Nice. What's your YouTube channel called? Uh, I think it's just my name, <laughs> Max Reef. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I have books on Amazon. And uh, I don't think, I think my first CD is on Amazon, but it's not as professional as the second one. So I don't really uh, promote that one too much. There's a, there's a website devoted to Mayor Baba, a bookstore devoted to Mayor Baba in Myrtle Beach called Sherry R Books. And you can get my CD, called, which is called Love's River, my recent CD, uh, through them. That's S-H-E-R-I-A-R-B-O-O-K-S dot org. Great. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. So before we end the interview, Max, is there yes. anything else that you want to share with the audience? Well, I was going to sh- actually my my my, <laughs> my intention was to share this experience of God of my life being saved through art, through painting. But that's a whole other story. Maybe I'll just save it for another time. It's, uh, I still had another nervous, even though I had having, how can this be having all this help from God and spiritual figures? And yet I still kept having nervous breakups, but I haven't had one in, I think, 35 years or 40 years or something like that. So it did help. <laughs> Yeah, for but, sure. Well, because, you know, yeah. it's like peeling the layers of the onion. Around, yeah, that's right. right. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then, but, but in, the, in the last one, which was 1989, I ended up in a halfway house after somebody sort of drove me crazy. And, and I was stuck in the halfway house because it was supposed to be a therapeutic community. But the therapy they were telling you to do was just to hang out together in the, in the recreation room after dinner. And so you're hanging out with all these other disturbed people. And, you know, it was driving me more crazy. So one time on a bus, uh, this was Staten Island, New York, where I was living. I stopped at an art store and bought some art supplies, and I hid them under my bed. And one night soon, I got the inspiration to slip away from this recreation room group smothering 
that we were, and slip back up to my room and spread out my materials on the floor and do a painting. And uh, it was almost like going into a trance. I went so deep. And then for every night I would do that for the next several months. And there was always, it was like in, in the end of it, three or four hours, I would see this beautiful painting in front of them, usually about 18 inches by 24 inches. That was the big pad of art paper that I had. And it, it showed me that whatever had happened with my external life, inside me, I was completely whole. And the art was so inspiring that, you know, it brought me back to balance again. I, I was finally invited to put some of these paintings in a, in a, a show in Hoboken, New Jersey. And then I I uh, entered the uh, New York Art Students League, which is a wonderful art school, and spent about a year painting there. And uh, just lately, I've been doing a lot of paintings. It's it's a wonderfully therapeutic and tool, more than therapy. It's it's just a way to share the divine gift that we all have. And also, it can be helpful in working through our own stuff sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to put in a plug for art. And I guess that's the last thing I need to say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Actually, that's one, that's one of the things on my bucket list is to okay. paint. Yeah. And you can actually, you can find my paintings and a lot of my writings too. I have a website that's called, uh, faith of an artist. Faith, uh, yeah. Faith, the faith of an artist. And it's a Jim Doe. That's the company. It's an Australian company website. You can, and in combination with my main, with my name, you can find a lot of my paintings and writings on that website too. Fantastic. Okay. Fantastic. Well, Max, this was such an amazing story. And I certainly learned so many things that I did not know about. And I've been taking notes. Uh, and uh, we'll be we'll be heading on to Google as soon as this is over. So uh, thank you okay. so much for thank joining you, me today. Sandy. I really thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, your voice was very friendly and inviting. And I felt completely comfortable with you. Oh, so thanks thank again. you. Thank yeah. you. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye bye. What an incredible journey Max has been on in his life. Wow. And I love toward the end of the interview when he was talking about shame and that we have to deal with this shame in, in our life and move it into the direction of love. So probably the best way to learn more about Max is to Google him, Max Reef, R-E-I-F. There will also be more information in the show notes. So thank you so much for joining today. You can learn more about me at sandyscarlotta.com. My book, Happiness Solved, Climbing 100 Steps is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Coach Sandy Scarlotta. As always, I hope that you and your family are safe and healthy and that your life is filled with peace, joy, happiness, and loads of love. Take care, everyone.